WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to the Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series that explores student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts, Madi Dowling and Dimitri Joseph. Today we have Logan Soul with us. So Logan, if you don't mind, could you just give us a brief introduction of who you are? Hi, yeah, I'm uh, Logan Soul. I'm glad to be here today. I'm a fifth year PhD student in the biomedical engineering department doing some exciting work on blood storage, red blood cell storage. Very cool. And what exactly do you do looking at blood storage? Yeah, we work on improving the potential for normal glycemic red blood cell storage. So maybe let me back up and talk about how blood storage, blood processing happens. So when you go donate blood, say at a blood drive, they'll draw that blood into first an anticoagulant. So that serves the purpose just to you know, prevent coagulation. And then after that, they centrifuge that blood and separate it into its components, the plasma, which they might store. But then they take the concentrated red cells and they put that into what's called an additive solution. And that additive solution also serves the purpose of preventing coagulation, but also preserving the health of those red cells during refrigerated storage for up to six weeks. And then when they need it, they go give it to a patient and transfuse it. Now, the problem is during that storage period, these red cells undergo irreversible metabolic and physiological damages, collectively termed the storage lesion. So some of these include reduced deformability. They can't squish as well when they go through the veins and arteries, decreased ATP release, which is very important for blood flow, reactive oxygen species generation. So a lot of different problems. Now, interestingly, a lot of these same issues are also characteristic of type 1 diabetic red blood cells. So my PI, my boss at the time, kind of realized that there, this connection and thought, huh, I wonder if it's the sugar content in these additive solutions because it's about eight times higher than that of even diabetic levels. And so my work is related to storing cells kind of in these same additive solutions, but just lowering that sugar content. And they actually function much better in terms of all those characteristics, functionalities that I mentioned. What are red blood cells typically used for? What type of emergencies? Yeah, so, you know, actually one of the, the number one, I guess, patient group that transfusions are used for is actually cancer patients because of chemotherapy and the anemia that, that happens due to chemotherapy. So usually cancer patients or if you have an extreme acute hemorrhage in someone maybe who was in a car accident or something, they would undergo transfusions. Or there's people who have sickle cell disease that get transfusions all the time or people with beta thalassemia. So there's a large patient group that gets these transfusions of these red cells that really aren't performing as well as they really could be. How did you guys figure out that the high glycemic level of these red blood cells were an issue? Yeah, again, so it kind of relates back to our previous work in our lab with type 1 diabetes, where we were measuring these things like ATP release and deformability and oxidative stress, things that are very vital for red blood cell function and that we've proven that normal, healthy red blood cells behave much better than type 1 diabetic red blood cells. And so we decided to initially start testing this normal glycemic storage process by starting with some of these same additive solutions, but we just decreased that glucose content. And throughout storage, we would kind of take samples and, and just measure this ATP release through very well-known enzymatic reaction to test that and also test for a reactive oxygen species through an indirect measurement of sorbitol, actually. Sorbitol mm -hmm. is a a good indirect measurement of reactive oxygen species. And a lot of my work right now actually deals with making more direct measurements of that as well. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what exactly is hyperglycemia and how does that affect oxidative stress on the red blood cells? Yeah, that's a great question. So traditionally in red cells, they only produce 
their ATP or their energy molecule for all of their energy needing reactions, they produce that only through glycolysis. So they actually can't perform oxidative phosphorylation, which was what most of your other cells do. It's because they don't have mitochondria. So they only can make ATP through anaerobic glycolysis. That process will eventually create pyruvate and I believe two to four ATP for the cell. However, in hyperglycemic conditions, there are also other glucose metabolism pathways that will end up creating reactive oxygen species. So one of those is what's called the polyol pathway. And so it takes that glucose, converts it to sorbitol, and then sorbitol to fructose. And the problem there is it disrupts the redox potential, redox balance for that cell. And so it uses these, what are called reducing equivalents, such as NADPH, and it uses them up. So the cell can't use those reducing equivalents to then reduce harmful reactive oxygen species. And those reactive oxygen species are harmful because as they're labeled, they can react with proteins and lipids in that red cell and cause them to be useless, right? So it can cause membrane damage. The cell can't control its ion concentration as well. It can cause enzymes and other proteins to not function as well. So at the end of the day, this hyperglycemia leads to more reactive oxygen species generation for the cell. What are the effect of some of these storage lesions on the transfusion recipients and of transfusion of the blood? Yeah, that's a great question. There's actually some debate in the literature about that. There is some literature that will say that these storage lesion indicators directly relate to and impact clinical outcomes. Things like inflammatory markers, so an immune response, things like what's called transfusion-related acute lung injury. You can get iron overload because these red cells will lyse. In, in circulation, and so you have too much iron. There's a lot of microvesicles that kind of bleb off of the red cells during storage, and they actually scavenge nitric oxide in your circulation. And nitric oxide is super important because it's a vasodilator. So that nitric oxide will dilate your vessels, allowing for better blood flow, more oxygen to your organs. But if you don't have that nitric oxide, then you're going to constrict those vessels. But there's also some literature that says there is no significant impact of transfusing, say, old blood versus fresh blood. But we think the reason why a lot of these this literature says there's no impact is because they're just measuring mortality, right? And there's definitely a big difference between someone dying or someone just being unhealthy due to a transfusion, right? You can you can still live, but maybe not be as healthy as, as you could be with maybe a better transfusion product. But what I understand of what, what's important for blood transfusions is that typically you, you would like to match based off of blood typing, but it seems like you're introducing a, a newer metric that's called storage lesions. How exactly are you using storage lesions and what are they? Yeah, so they're not necessarily specific to blood types necessarily. They are characteristic of any really stored blood at all. But, you know, in order maybe to understand storage lesion and its impact, let's maybe back up and talk about the function of red cells, what they need to do in circulation, right? They need to deliver oxygen to your organs. They need to circulate needed to get into all those small capillaries and really offload that oxygen. And so there's a lot of different parameters that go into being able to do that well. And one of the most important things is the red cell's ability to release ATP. That ATP release leads to then synthesis of nitric oxide from the endothelial cells, which allows for greater blood flow, thus more red cells and more oxygen. So ATP is really, really huge in terms of being able to offload that oxygen and, and red blood cell circulation. Additionally, a molecule known as 2,3-DPG is very important. It acts to offload that oxygen from hemoglobin, so you can actually deliver that oxygen to red cells. And at the same time, also the deformability of the red cell is 
very important in order to get into those small capillaries. So one of the biggest things in the storage lesion that leads to problems is those three parameters. The red cells during storage significantly drop in their ability to release ATP, their deformability significantly falls, and their 2,3 DPG also rapidly falls. And so when you go to transfuse these red cells into a patient, they're not going to function as well in their ability to induce blood flow and offload oxygen. So those are really important parameters. And at the same time, all those are related to the oxidative damage that happens to these red cells during storage, which I think is an underlying cause of all of those three components. Again, so it was deformability, 2,3 DPG, and what was the third? ATP release. An ATP release, okay. So you're saying that these storage lesions are what cause blood use for transfusions to be less effective in, in the patients that that's receiving them compared to blood that's already in their system? Yeah, that's definitely the case. And one of the, the hallmark gold standard measurements of that is what's called post-transfusion recovery or 24-hour post-transfusion recovery. Basically, it's a measurement of how many of those red cells or what percentage of those red cells are actually still circulating after transfusion. Now, the gold standard in for, say, a new storage method to be approved is 75%. That's set by the FDA. 75% of those stored red cells have to still be circulating in the body after transfusion in order to be FDA approved. But that's the goal, really, is to try to improve that 24-hour post-transfusion recovery rate as much as possible, because you wouldn't necessarily want to take a drug product that is 75% effective, right? You want that to be 100% effective. So same thing with blood transfusions. You want to try to improve that. Just to summarize and make sure that I have everything clear, mm-hmm. currently the standard blood transfusion process is using this hyperglycemic solution, and that causes the, the storing process of these blood samples to kind of degrade and be more deformable and to release all these molecules that aren't best for the physiology of the person that's receiving the blood. So I'm curious to know now, what exactly does your research do and how are you trying to improve this process of blood storage? Yeah, no, that's a good question because we've published a lot already on how normal glycemic blood storage does improve some of these parameters. But the problem is during storage, if you start with a normal glycemic condition, those cells are going to use that glucose for metabolism. And now you're actually going to be hypoglycemic, right? And those cells are not going to like that either. A big part of my project was actually automating a feeding device because what we were doing originally was manually feeding these stored red cells every two to three days with some glucose so they could maintain their normal glycemic levels. But we can't reasonably assume that these blood banks are going to be able to do that with however many thousands or hundreds of thousands of blood bags they have. So I developed this automated glucose feeding device that completely maintains sterility and is completely autonomous in its ability to feed these cells with glucose to maintain normal glycemic conditions throughout its six-week storage period. Is it more expensive to have this automated process of continuously feeding glucose as opposed to, I guess, the high initial dose that we currently use? Yes, by nature, it's definitely going to be more expensive, but that's one of the things that I tried to keep in mind in my design of Mm -hmm. my system, trying to use kind of simple pre-existing technology out there to be able to reduce that cost. So the feeding system I designed is very similar to just an IV bag, right? I'm using gravity to actually drive the fluid flow of a concentrated glucose solution into a red blood cell bag. And it's just a valve in the middle that I can open and close that just controls how much I deliver at a time. So relatively speaking, that's pretty simple technology already exists and is, again, relatively cheap or as cheap as it maybe could be. 
I'd like to know a little bit more about how you came up with the system and what the process was behind that. Yeah, absolutely. So I think I came into my PI's office one day. I was one of the maybe two BME students in his lab because he's actually he's got a few chemistry students and a few CMIB students. So he came to me and said, Logan, you know, you're an engineer. You know, I came from the chemistry department, so I don't know much about this stuff, but we need to automate the system. You know, so use your engineering brain to do that. So the first few things I thought of in terms of design parameters was exactly that. One, it has to be cost effective, right? If it's too much cost, no one's actually going to want to implement this. Two, it couldn't disrupt the current blood collection process. That's too standardized nowadays, too familiar. And, you know, you host blood drives all the time at schools or churches or what have you. So we couldn't disrupt how that actually happened. And the third thing was that, again, the design needed to be simple and automated and maintain complete sterility, because that was one of the things we were trying to tackle. So those were my design parameters as I was going into it. And with that in mind, looking at kind of current delivery systems of fluids, I stumbled upon you know the IV system. And, and so I was trying to initially just try to figure out how I can automate that and control that in terms of the volume that's delivered. What were some of your findings from applying this system to a blood storage? My initial design was not very consistent, but it was able to maintain a normal glycemic glucose condition. So that's about between four to six millimolar. It was able to maintain that through about five weeks of storage, but it's not necessarily consistent. We're currently working on actually improvements to that design where instead of actually using a valve, we're using a pump, which might be a little more expensive, not too much though, we don't think. Um, and through that, we're able to get actually much more precise glucose control. We can actually deliver a lot smaller volumes of this concentrated glucose, which we think is going to help in being able to maintain our glucose levels much more consistently. And have you looked at the storage lesions oh. after getting the normal glycemic? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we've continued to measure some other markers as well. Currently, what I'm looking at right now is what's called phosphatidylserine. It's a marker on the red blood cell, really on any cell membrane. It's an apoptosis marker, so it indicates to other monocytes or macrophages to come engulf them and clear them out of the circulation. In this case, higher levels of phosphatidylserine are an indication of protein oxidation, membrane damage. Basically, this cell is not going to function well, and it's ready to die. I've been looking at that through storage, and that seems to be higher in hyperglycemic red blood cell storage as opposed to our normal glycemic red blood cell storage, which makes sense looking at some of our other data we've collected. I've also been looking at osmotic fragility. It's important to keep the cell lysis levels down in storage, but also when you go transfuse it into somebody, you know, relating to that post-transfusion recovery, another measurement of that is with osmotic fragility. So we put these red cells in a osmotically stressed state, so a hypotonic solution, and we can measure the amount of cells that are actually lysing in that solution. And in hyperglycemic storage, it turns out there's significantly much more cell lysis than in normal glycemic storage when looking at osmotic stress. Cool, very cool. Yeah, it's very neat. Is this something that you guys have already looked at in live patients and patient outcomes, or is that something that's still to come in the future? Yeah, we haven't actually looked at human clinical outcomes yet. You know, this is all human blood that we're working with, which is also really cool. We get to draw it off each other in the lab. But our next step right now actually is doing some in vivo studies into some sheep. So we're trying to draw some blood out of some sheep, store it, and then transfuse it back into the sheep. And specifically the markers we're going to be looking at or the measurements we're going to be taking is the 24-hour post-transfusion recovery, as well as looking at some immune response measurements. So looking at inflammatory biomarkers, as well as kind of total white blood cell count as well.
but that's what we're currently working towards right now. This kind of takes a step back to what you were saying originally about your lab looking at diabetes work, but is this something that you guys are connecting back to type 1 diabetes and the way that their blood might work in hyperglycemic states, or are you looking at it more in the transfusion context? Yeah, I mean, it always can relate back to type 1 diabetes and red blood cells of type 1 diabetes patients. What I think specifically is in the storage lesion, the main motivator of these storage lesion indicators, measurements, what have you, is again that oxidative stress, which is also very significant in type 1 diabetic patients. This polyol pathway is what produces that sorbitol, and it's again an indirect measurement of oxidative stress, but it's also elevated in type 1 diabetic patients. And the glycation, which is basically the non-enzymatic addition of glucose to proteins and the red cell membrane that's also elevated in red blood cell storage as well as type 1 diabetic patients. So the combination of this advanced glycation of proteins in the red cell membrane as well as oxidation is a very clear link between type 1 diabetes and blood storage. So how did you guys realize that this high glycemic level in stored blood was an issue and that current blood storage methods could be improved? Yeah, it was actually really interesting. So our group traditionally had been doing a lot of research in type 1 diabetes, which is, you know, related to hyperglycemia. And so my PI was, I believe, reviewing a grant at one time, and it had to do with blood storage and transfusion. And with his knowledge of what normal glucose levels are, he kind of noticed that these storage solutions and additive solutions had glucose levels that were five, six, seven, eight times higher than that of diabetic levels. So he kind of leaned over to his who his buddy who who I believe was an MD at the time and kind of said, Hey, you know, is this is this normal for these additive solutions to have that much glucose? Like, is that how it is with blood storage? And so the MD kind of just shrugged his shoulders and said, Yeah, why? Is that high? And my PI at the time was like, Yeah, that's high. That's eight times the level of these diabetic red blood cells. And again with his knowledge of our current research at the time, knowing that these type one diabetic red cells exhibited some of the same dysfunctionalities that these stored red blood cells have, he thought, man, I wonder if we just store these things in normal sugar levels, maybe they'd function a lot better. And so that was kind of the birth of the idea. And, you know, we started making some of these measurements and turns out, as we can see, these red cells function a lot better in these normal glycemic conditions. So I imagine that if you're using human blood, everybody is going to have different blood sugar levels as they get their blood taken, even depending on whether they ate recently. So how do you guys control for that? Yeah, no, that's a great question because that is a problem that relates to our consistency of maintaining normal glycemic levels. The valve that we currently use really just dispenses a singular bolus of glucose every three days that is the same throughout storage. So the problem is those red cells, not only is there donor variability in how much glucose that they'll use, but there's also throughout storage, they stop using as much glucose. So that leads to these inconsistency problems of being able to maintain this normal glycemic condition of these red cells through six weeks of storage. An ideal scenario and maybe a future iteration of this design would be to include a glucose monitor within the red cell bag that could then relay real-time information to the valve to get customizable glucose dispensing into that bag. Now, again, that's farther down the road because that's, you know, we first kind of have to prove the concept, but that definitely would be the better design. We kind of know we already have that technology because diabetics have real-time glucose sensing on their bodies already. I want to clarify, just to make sure I'm understanding mm-hmm. correctly. You're saying that when you collect blood, the blood cells need glucose to survive. That's why when you put them into storage, you give them a bunch of glucose to make sure they have enough to keep them alive but that causes this hyperglycemic state that can cause all these storage lesions and other issues that you've described. And so you're suggesting that by giving the blood cells 
sugar a little bit of time, you're instead able to mitigate some of those effects. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. And if you think about it, that's how our own bodies operate, right? You eat at breakfast, lunch, and dinner, right? You don't necessarily eat all at once in the morning and say, all right, I'll eat again tomorrow. I'll eat again in two days, you know? So our data, it appears as though that is leading to better functionality of those red blood cells during storage. Now that this conversation is coming to a close, it seems like you're very experienced and knowledgeable about creating systems and just applying physics, chemistry, and integrating the, the sciences. So could you just give us a background about how you gained all of this experience? Well, it's through mostly a lot of asking people who are smarter than you type thing. Someone else in our lab, he had a mechanical engineering background, you know, in undergrad, and me going into this, I had a chemical engineering background in undergrad. And so designing some sort of automated feeding system, physical system, it was kind of a little foreign to me, a little new. So I leaned a lot on on him in terms of the actual design and implementation of this valve system that uses gravity to drive fluid flow. So it was a lot of asking him and a lot of asking my other lab members who were smarter in terms of chemistry because they were chemistry grad students in terms of how these reactions might work. So it was really just leaning a lot on my other lab members for a lot of that. Being that this is your final year of graduate school, what insight would you give to the young graduate student that's getting ready to embark on this journey? I would say there can be bad days and there can be good days. And I think what you really need to do is try to focus on the good days, days where you made some progress, you got some good data, and really kind of reflect on how far you've come from day one to all the way when you finish your journey or wherever you're at right now is just reflect on the good stuff. I think even trying to undertake this huge issue where you're coming up with a solution to a problem that nobody's really thought of is a really cool part of biomedical engineering, I think. So hats off to you for trying to tackle this issue and coming up with an actual product that has had results. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. It's been a great time. Thank you.